All right, so uh, I want to start with this. Um, let's start with this quote today. This is from uh, this is from a missionary from the 1900s, early 1900s. His name is uh, Samuel Zwemer. Zwemer. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, but um, he was a missionary to the Muslim world, and uh, he was giving this his speech in front of a, a bunch of young young people and. Um, this is a quote from that. He said, uh, said uh, here is opportunity for those who at home may never find elbow room for their latent capacities, who may never find adequate scope elsewhere for all the powers of their minds and their souls. There are hundreds of Christian college men who expect to spend life in practicing law or in some trade for a livelihood, yet who have strength and talent enough to enter those unoccupied fields. There are young doctors who might gather around them in some new mission station, thousands of, those who, uh, thousands of those who suffer the horrors of heathenism and Islam and lift their burden of pain, but who now confine their efforts to some pent-up Utica where the healing art is subject to the law of competition and is measured too often merely in terms of a cash book and ledger. They are making a living. They might be making a life. Uh, this is something I read a long time ago. I think I was in college when I first read this. And um, I remember it had, a, it had an impact on me. You know, it profoundly impacted me. Here's a man who spent, I think he spent like 26 or 30 years um, on the mission field, you know, largely in the Muslim world. And at that time, there were even, you know, still now, there are not a lot of Christians in the Muslim world. Uh, but back then, there were like, Nobody. There was like nobody. And he was trying to kind of go into these unreached areas. And, you know, he shared this thing, basically. And this is from, again, this is like early 1900s. And he's talking about the idea that many people uh, in the Western world are going to do things where a lot of who they are, a lot of their abilities are going to be wasted because they are focused more on making a living than making a life. Because many people in the Western world, and this seems like obviously none of us were alive in the early 1900s, but I'm just going to assume that it's even more like that now. That... And when I heard this and I was, you know, when I read this and I was in college, I think at that time in my life, my career mattered, my future career, my status in society mattered, money certainly mattered. But all of those things were really tied to the idea of just making a living. And for me, that that was part of the reason that I decided to go into ministry. Now, I'm certainly not saying that You have to be a vocational minister to be in ministry. In fact, I would say the opposite, and I've said many things to that effect. Uh, If you're a believer, you're called to ministry regardless of your vocation. However, I would say that many of us are in danger of making a living while wholly neglecting the idea of making and living and sharing life. And because that temptation is so great, what, what uh, I kind of want us to ask ourselves today is, 
that question, I, I kind of want us to pose that question to our own hearts. You know, am I really making a life? Like, am I living life and giving life and sharing life, or am I just making a living? And we're going to look at three kind of diagnostic questions that are going to help us answer that and kind of assess our own hearts. Um, So it's going to be these three questions. Where is your treasure stored? What is your financial focus? And who's your master? Uh, Where is your treasure stored? What is your financial focus? And who is your master? Those are the three questions we're going to be kind of looking at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse uh, 19. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. If you don't have your Bible, you can just look up at the screen. Though I encourage you to look at your Bible if you do have it. Uh, Matthew six nineteen to 24. This is God's word, and it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this text starts off with uh, this idea. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You know, I mean, we all know what these things are, even though the ideas are not, they're slightly nuanced. So it's not exactly what we think of, but it's close enough, right? You know, moth, moths are commonly recognized as the destroyers of, you know, the basic materials of life. I don't know if you guys deal with moths, actually, like, you know, in your house or something, but I do, you know, in a, my stinking like, like shirts and things, they'll get, they'll get like holes in them because that's what moths do. They, they destroy like the fabric of things. And so, you know, this would be a big problem, particularly in the ancient world. They don't have like, I don't know, like vacuum sealed storage bags, you know, like we have, they don't have these kinds of drawers and things that can, you know, protect their, their garments, their clothes, you know, their, there are fine linens, like these things cannot be protected against moths. So they would know these things. Even something very great and expensive could just be destroyed by like this small little insect. And that is the idea, right? The small, in this world, our treasures, the smallest of insects can destroy. Rust, you know, and we think of rust like metal rust. This would be more of a, the idea is more of a general kind of decay basically over time. Anything we own in this life over time, it's going to break down. You know, we have these notions that things are supposed to, I don't know why we think this, but we think things are supposed to last forever. Like when something starts breaking, you're like, dude, why is this breaking? It's like, what do you mean? Everything that's ever existed has broken, right? Like all cars ever have broken down, you know, all devices, all, all clothes, whatever, all shoes, they've all broken down over time. That's normal, right? That's actually what's supposed to happen. Things break. Thieves can steal things in this life. I've had many things stolen, you know, in my life. Sadly, 
And that's just, that's just part of the deal. Right? And so he's saying, don't invest, don't, don't store up your treasures on earth where all these things can happen, where things can be taken away, where they break down, where they can be destroyed. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where none of that happens. Right? The idea is whatever you store up in heaven cannot be taken away. That, that can never be taken. It's never going to break down. Right? There are no moths in heaven, right? There's no rust in heaven. There are no thieves in heaven. That stuff is secure there. And then he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you are storing your treasure on earth, then most likely what you think about is making a living. Right? And, and making a living, okay? There, there's a difference between making a life and making a living. Making a living is draining. Making a living creates burden and obligation. When you're making a living, you're constantly thinking about essentially your idea, like your mentality is survival. It's getting by. That's how you think. Even Whether you make $10,000 a year or $100,000 a year, you still think you're surviving. Right? You always feel under-resourced. Why? Because everything you're living for dies. Everything you're storing your treasure in breaks. And it can get stolen and it's not secure. Right? Because if, if your hope is in your house and that's what you're living for, if your hope is in your, you know, your income and that's what you're living for, if your hope's in a car or your hope's in a, you know, this, this new thing or that new thing, that, that stuff's all going to break. So, of course, you're not going to feel like you have a lot because everything you have is not secure. Everything you have is going to disappear one day. And that's where your heart is. Contrastingly, making a life breeds life. Right? When God is creating and cultivating life in you, then you feel empowered. And everything you have is at your disposal to multiply life. What God offers us is not a living, but a life. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a house and a car and a retirement plan. And look, none of those things are wrong. But those aren't the things that we have our hope in. That's not what God offers. What God offers is life. Right? You remember John 4 when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well? Right? And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, where's your, you got no bucket. Like, you got no, you got no, you got no jar. Like, how are you going to get this water out of this thing? Right? And Jesus is like, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, that's what Jesus offers. Not a living, not a job, not an income, 
not a lifestyle, not a standard of living. He offers life, eternal life. And that's not only eternal afterlife. It's not a statement to the quantity of life that he offers. It's not like life on earth forever. No, it's a, it's a different kind of life. John fifteen eleven. he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full to have Fullness of life and joy is what Christ has for you. Fullness of joy in the forgiveness and acceptance and communion that we are offered with Christ, that relationship. Now, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Right? So if your treasure is stored on earth, that's where your heart is. That's where your passion is. That's where your desire is. That's where the whole of your being is invested. And if your heart is if your treasure is stored in heaven, then that's where your heart is. Right? That's where your passion is. That's where your desire is. That's where the whole of your being, your purpose, that's where you will live. So the diagnostic question is, where is your treasure stored? Where is your treasure? And a, a, a point here, because this is specifically about money, right? One of the points is that money talks. Like, money reveals where your treasure is actually stored. There's something fascinating about money, right? Money serves as a diagnostic that reveals your heart much more than your mouth does. Because we could all say stuff, right? We could all be like, oh, no, I love Jesus. You know, I love the poor. You know, I care about, like, justice. You know, oh, no, like, I want, I want us to reach the world. You know, I care about missionaries. I care about, you know, like, I care about all these things. But we could just look at our, our bank statements and just see. That's, that's where your treasure is. What are you spending on? What are you saving for? Your budget is a good diagnostic for your heart, and it's one that's better than your words. Right now, so here's something encouraging, right? I mean, Heather just shared something that I think is awesome. There's a bunch of people in this room have given some of their, like, they've put their money where their mouth is. You know, it's, you guys have put your money where your mouth is. That's great. That's amazing. Right? That is the kind of thing that we should build upon, the kind of thing that we should think about. Now, I'll give you some numbers. This isn't about our church, but this is just about America <laughs> in general. So uh, what do Americans spend on? I look at this almost every year. I look at this, and I find it fascinating because I don't remember the numbers, obviously. But then every time I look at it, I'm, I'm – it's interesting, right? So here are some of the things Americans spend money on. Uh, Americans are projected to spend $9 billion on Halloween, on Halloween, right? So, you know, costumes and stuff like that. Um, and just I, – yeah, I don't know, candy, I guess, you know, and giving out stuff and putting stuff up. Uh, Americans spend about $70 billion a year on pets, you know, which is just, it, it's not like bad or anything like that. But um, I actually did find it interesting, though, that $440 million of this of this money, of this $70 billion, goes to pet costumes, pet Halloween costumes. So crossing the first two, I guess that overlaps a little bit. Um, and then... Um, the big one, right? Americans spend about $465 billion a year on Christmas. So that includes gifts, you know, parties, like all that kind of stuff. So I'll just give you one more. 
it would cost about $30 billion a year to end world hunger. $30 billion a year. So what that means is if Americans cut back on their Christmas spending by 6.5% and gave that money to the cause of world hunger, we could end world hunger. Is that nuts? Is that insane? That sounds insane to me. If you cut back... Six fifty for every hundred dollars you spent on Christmas, and just straight donated that money to the cause of world hunger. Right? If everybody in America did that, you know, three hundred plus million people, right? If everybody did that, you could just end world hunger, like every year. I mean, no matter how many times I look at this, I can't believe it. I can't believe that that's true. In fact, if we just cut our, you know, if we just cut our spending on pets by a little less than half, it would feed all the starving children in the world. Now, look, math is just math, you know, and I don't think that's, like, we could show that to everybody in America, right? Well, I'm sure it's, it's out there because I found it, obviously. And so that information is there for people to find and to know. I don't really think it's going to change anything, ultimately. What's important for us is to really ask ourselves the question, knowing that. Maybe you didn't know that before, but now you know it. To ask yourself the question, where is your treasure stored? Or maybe this is a better question. Where do you want your treasure to be stored? Do you want it to be stored here in this world Or do you want it to be stored up in heaven with God so that that's where your heart is? That's where your passion is. That's where your desire is. And the idea is from the text is store up your treasure in heaven because it's the greater treasure. Now he goes on to talk here, starts a new section here. What's related? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, Your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? Now, these words, actually the word good used here can can be translated a couple different ways. Uh, One way it can be translated is generous. If you have kind of a generous eye. Uh, Another way it can be translated is if you have a single-minded, a single eye, but the idea is like a single-minded eye, like you see a certain thing only. Uh, And then the word bad here is kind of more, it it connotes kind of a moral evil, but it also is used to, um, it it can mean like greedy. Like if you have a greedy eye or if you have a materialistic eye. And it seems like that contrast that Jesus is making, particularly given the second word, is that he's saying if you have a generous eye, you will be filled with light. If you have a kind of a greedy eye, then you'll be filled with darkness. So the question for us is, what is our focus? What do you think about money? You know, what is it to you, basically? Um, 
I would. I, I guess I would pose the question this way: Do you see money as a tool to give life, or do you see money as a tool to advance your living? That's kind of the difference between making a life. Making a life, you're focused on a life of giving. Making a living, you're focused on a life of consumption. So what can I do for myself? What can I, you know, eat or drink or wear? Kind of, and this is, by the way, this is just before the passage we went over two weeks ago about not worrying. And so those things are connected. Um, So here's another way we could ask the question. Are you more concerned about guarding your money so that you can feel secure or making money so that you can help those in need? Jesus encourages his listeners, focus on opportunities to be generous, not opportunities to be rich. And, you know, that's a huge temptation. That's a huge temptation in our world. Now, I kind of just want to move to this last section here. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, that's really interesting because I think when we think of it, money is just a purely neutral thing. It's just a thing that exists. You can use it for good. You know, you can use it for evil. You can gain it with integrity or you can gain it illicitly, right? And that's kind of the idea behind money. And that is, to some degree, I would say that that's true. But the way that the Bible treats money is generally not like that. Like, money is not neutral. Money can be, certainly can be used for good. But it's not neutral. If you have a bunch of money lying around or you have a bunch of money in your pocket, it's not going to be a neutral thing. The temptation is going to be for it to be your master. That's how the Bible sets it up. It's a rival to God. It wants your heart. It wants to own you. This is from uh, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know, this is called the Shema, right? And it was something that, you know, the Jews would recite. And the idea here, and, you know, it's crazy because we read, a lot of times we read this stuff, right? And it just kind of goes over our heads. But when it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Do you guys know what that means? Like the Lord is one? Because to truly appreciate the power and centrality of the the claim, we we need to understand the original context. And so people living in the ancient Near East, they were a deeply spiritual people. They recognized that life was filled with, you know, like the sacred, the mystical, even kind of the unexplainable. And so they had a bunch of gods, right? There's, there's gods all over the place, like gods that they worshiped. So there's like a god of the harvest. There's like a god of the field. You know, there's a god of the river. There's a god of fertility. You know, there's a god of, you know, whatever. Whatever, whatever you think of, god of rain, right? And all these kind of different things. And they would give these offerings to these different gods. And these gods could be capricious at times. You know, these guys, it's like, you think about like the Greek or Roman gods, Right, you know, Zeus and like all those other guys, whatever. <laughs> I can't think of any of them right now. You know, whatever. Poseidon, Achilles, I don't know. All these guys, right? Like there's all these gods, right? You know, the gods from like mythology. 
And that was kind of the idea of the gods from the ancient world too. Like, they're not these holy, benevolent, you know, good gods. They're just kind of fickle. They just do whatever they want, basically, except they have powers. And that's kind of the idea of the gods. So they would have to, like, worship them. They'd have to pray to them. They'd have to offer up sacrifices to them. They'd have to do all these things. And so when God, Yahweh, comes and he says, the Lord your God, Yahweh, our God, and you say, Yahweh is one, they're saying, there's just one God. There's not all these different gods. There's not a God of the harvest. There's not a God of fertility. There's not a God of the river. Why are you wasting your time? Right? Like, why are you wasting your time serving all these different quote-unquote gods? There, there's no God out there. No God out there helping you, you know, do that one thing. And they would offer up, you know, sacrifice. Like, oh, I want to I have a baby, so I got to offer this sacrifice up to the fertility God. You know, I want a good harvest, so I got to offer up this sacrifice to the harvest God. I got to, you know, we need a good crop or we want rain. You know, we need rain. There's been famine and drought. So we got to pray, you know, to the God of rain. Life was spiritual for them, but it was ruled by just a bunch of gods. Yahweh, God, our God, is the Lord of home, field, you know, politics, work, relationships, Money. He's the God of everything. Yahweh, the one God, rules over every aspect of life in our world. Romans 11.35 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. So as Christians, the task of our lives is to bring every aspect of our life communal, Individual, you know, financial, vocational, everything that we do in service, everything that we say to any person, everything that we think about, every subject under the lordship of the one God, Yahweh. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So for the purposes of today in this specific subject of, of money, we can't think, well, money's money and God's God. You know, I mean, God is God, but, but money's money. You know, and work is work, and family's family. Relationships are relationships. Like, these are things that exist in my life and in my world, and they operate by a certain set of rules, and then God also operates on a different set of rules. You know, church operates in a different set of rules and a different segment of my life, and these other things are in these other places. And Jesus in this passage specifically is saying, like, nah, you can't think that. Because if God is not the master of your money, then your money is your master. So let me, let me give you some practical things. Okay, how can we make God the master of our money? One, first thing. This is probably something you've heard a lot, you know, but I'll start with it because it is the most basic thing. Okay, give to God first. Give to God first. Right? And what people, a lot of people preach, what they preach is like, give God a pre 
<laughs> what like a pre-tax gross income tithe, right? Like that's what that's like a that's like a I don't know I don't I don't know what that is. I think it's like a white American thing too, like that that people do in churches. I'm not going to tell you how much to give God, right? There is no biblical mandate as to how much you should give God in the Old Testament. There is a tithe. It's probably closer to thirty percent of your income. So that's not really that's not here or there, right? You know, in the New Testament, it just says it just says give. Right? Give generously. Give cheerfully. That's what the Bible says. So whatever that means to you. But what I would say is, make sure you set that aside. It can't be at the end of your budget. It can't be like, oh, we didn't have money this month, so we can't give to God. God's the one that's giving you the money in the first place, so you better give some back to him. Like, that's not a finance. And this, this, what I'm saying right now, this is not financial. This is a heart matter. This has nothing to do with finances. This has everything to do with who's your God. Is money your God or is God your God? The more you give to money and you think in terms of money, money will own you. Okay, you can't outsmart money. Trust me. Okay, many people try to do that. And they all end up in like pyramid schemes and like giving money to Nigerian princes and stuff like that. Like because they're all like, oh, dude, we can outsmart money. Like, we could figure out money. They lose all their money in the stock market or in real estate. Like, why? Because they worship money. They got no rules. Like, if all you're chasing after is money, money will own you. Trust me. For as much, you know, multi-level marketing, that's like basically what a pyramid scheme is. 99% of people lose money in it. But those companies, they all make billions of dollars. Why? Because people keep doing it. They keep doing it because some dude shows up with a nice car and like a speech and people are like, oh, dude, I want that. Right now it's like, what is it? It's like Amazon FBA. It's like I see these commercials on every like like YouTube thing. I don't know. It's like this is this is what it's all about. People just want to make money. If you do that, then money will own you. Give to God first. Okay, now here are some other things that are going to help you, right? Two, prayerfully establish kingdom-oriented financial goals. Prayerfully establish kingdom-oriented financial goals. Like, if you want your money to work for you rather than you working for it, then it needs a purpose. Like, its purpose can't be you know, so I can open up my app and look at it, right? Like, that can't be the purpose of your money, right? You probably have a security issue then, and, you know, you take great security and looking at a big number in your bank account. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a savings. I think, actually, you should have a savings because that's smart. But if you just have no goals for your money, then, one, you'll end up wasting it. Two, you will spend it all on earthly things. And three, you're never going to be able to actually do something with it for the kingdom because it takes, that kind of stuff takes actual planning, right? You can't just be like, well, whatever I'm left over, you know, I'm going to throw that. I'll throw that. That's what I'll throw at Heather, you know, just like, you know, just like toss that cash on her. Like, no, obviously, for all of you who have committed to give to Heather financially, you had to like, that's to be a goal, right, for you to achieve that. Hopefully, because if you didn't think of it that way, then you're not going to, one day you're not going to have enough money to do it. I'll just say this real quick. Like, there's so much need in the world. 
I mean, I was I was talking to this woman the other day, and it was like she was sharing with me about her grandson. Like her daughter had made some mistakes, and so she, you know, had gotten into I think some some substance issues, and so she her son was now going through like a hard time, and so this woman she was like she had uh, basically adopted her grandson, you know, because her daughter was kind of unfit to to raise um, him. And so she, in her, like, 50s, had taken on a kid. And then it was so, like, she was sharing with me, and it was so, like, heartbreaking for me because at a certain point, she could not financially support um, him anymore. And so she had to, you know, give him up. And, you know, he kind of, like, went into the system. And I was just thinking, because I had been going through some of my own financial stuff recently, and I was like, dude, my financial problems are stupid. Like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, uh, I felt so guilty, honestly. I'm just telling you honestly how I felt, because I was, like, thinking about non-essential stuff, stuff I don't need to live. And here's this woman who really, like, actually needs money to be able to help her grandson, like, who himself was kind of straying off the path and getting into some, I think, some kind of a bad, bad stuff. And I'm just thinking, like, like I wanted to help her. Like, I wished I could have just said, you know what, like, you know, come to our church or something. Or, like, here's, here's money or we'll support you. Like, we'll help you. Um, but obviously, you know, I can't do that. I mean, there's, there's tons of need out there, right? If you care about something, you know, if there's something on your heart and you feel like, you know, I really actually want to be able to help in some way. Like there's someone in my life, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's like a coworker, you know, there's someone in my community or there's something happening in the community or there's something happening in this country or this world and I want to actually be able to contribute something to that. Just pray about it. I mean, don't you don't got to, like, just drop all your money off, right? I would actually say don't do that. I would say pray about it and, like, set a goal and go after it. Now, here's um. well, you know what? I will suggest this. I, w- I don't know if I was going to do this or not. I'll give you a mini goal for this week, okay? I'm going to give you a mini goal for this week just to try this. Save $5 a day. Save $5 a day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And like on Friday, you know, whatever, after work or something. Or maybe on the weekend, Saturday is fine. Um, that's $25. And go spend that $25 on somebody. Right? can't be someone in need. It can be just, I would say, a kingdom goal. Maybe it's somebody that you've been meaning to talk to about the gospel or just even about their life. You just want to get to know them. Maybe it's some coworker or some friend that you've been meaning to catch up with who has been like off the path. And just save that money for that purpose. And here's the thing about where your treasure is, there your heart is, right? When you put skin in the game, like when you invest money into something like a kingdom goal, your heart is more invested in it. That's just true. 
So I would challenge you, try that out this week. Just try it out. Five dollars a day is like coffee. Don't get coffee. You know, I know some of you think you can't survive. I have some withdrawal when I don't get coffee. <laughs> but try it out. By the way, Americans spend about $1,100 on coffee every year <clears throat> per person. Um, okay, here's third thing I'd say. Okay, third thing I'd say. Uh, put your money on a leash. Put your money on a leash. What that means is have a budget. Um, so I, I told you guys about uh, Dave Ramsey, this, this financial guy, this weird financial guy who's like kind of Christian and a lot of churches actually use his his program. But he says this one thing that I actually really like. He says, um, adults devise a plan and follow it. Children do whatever feels good. Adults devise a plan and follow it. Children do whatever feels good. And he says this because a lot of people are in debt and they just continue to live that way and they live above their means and they kind of have just this like irresponsible lifestyle basically. What you should do is, and this takes time, account for every dollar you spend. Right, so every dollar you spend should be should should have a purpose, right? And don't get me wrong, like that purpose can be vacation, right? But if it's budgeted, then you know what you're spending it for, right? It shouldn't just be like whatever we have left, we're just going to use it for whatever, because then you can't ever achieve financial goals, particularly kingdom ones, because you're not going to be motivated for them unless you have planned it out. So, have a budget. Now, I'll say a couple things about this. Okay, I never, ever had a budget until I got married. I just did whatever I wanted. I just, whatever. I just, you know, I, I, I had some money and I had a ton of debt. And, um, you know, I kind of learned how to do this over time. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you the last point first, Okay. So that was the third thing, right? Have a budget, basically. Put your money on a leash. Here's the last thing I'll say, okay? Let the, generos- let the generosity of Christ lead you in generosity. Okay? Let the generosity of Christ lead you to generosity. Because I know this is getting, like, kind of technical. Um, but I do think we need these kind of practical things. So let me just share with you, okay, my own financial story, okay? Now, a lot of you guys know I grew up poor. I said this, like, a couple weeks ago. I grew up, like, like super ghetto okay basically okay literally like mcdonald's was a huge treat when i was a kid like huge like some of you guys are like oh you know me too you know when i was was like no no no, you don't understand okay when i went to mcdonald's with my family we literally got one cheeseburger and a cone and we split that five people my parents me my brother my sister we we just like split that okay when i i had a soda we got I, i i like loved soda we got soda like like three times a year, okay, like Christmas, you know, New Year's, like, it was, that's literally how precious soda was, and when we got soda, we split it three ways, me, my brother, and sister, we split it three cups, one can of soda, okay, that's, that's how I lived most of my childhood, <clears throat> and so, like I said, I don't know anything about a budget, I've never made more than $50,000 in a year, and, you know, I'm 36, and, um, 
you know, so we got married, and when I got married, um, I made $18,000 a year, and Boomi was unemployed, <laughs> okay? That was our situation when we got married. Okay, so we had a household income of $18,000, <laughs> which is, like, hilarious, right? Like, that's, that's ridiculous. You can't, you can't live off that, right? So I, you know, I had another job. I had to get another job. Boomi did all these weird jobs, you know, just to, like, survive. We didn't have a couch, a fridge, a TV, or a bed when we got married, you know, and that's just how we lived, right? And some of you guys, like, you don't remember, like, you know, you, you saw our place, like, when we first got married, but you don't even know how ghetto it, like, you don't realize it because, you know, we're all, like, young then, you know. But, but that's, that's how we lived, you know. And, oh, by the way, I had $100,000 in debt because I went to seminary, which is, just makes no sense why it's so expensive because you don't make a lot of money. But anyway, so I had $100,000 in debt, and I had, like, credit card debt. You know, I don't know. It's, like, thousands of dollars. I don't even remember now, right? But, like, you know, unpaid credit card debt, basically. So, like, not something you pay every month. It's, like, it was, like, a 18% APR credit card that's just, like, gaining, you know, I'm, like, losing money on, basically because I got scammed when I was in college, and I wasted, like, I don't know, like $10,000 or something like that. Okay, so this is, this was my financial life. I'm just being honest with you guys. This is my financial life, basically, like, less than 10 years ago, like, eight years ago. God has, like, provided for us every single step of the way. We have never had zero dollars in our account. But we were very close a few times, but we've never reached that point. We have not accrued any, you know, we, we never had to, like, go into debt. We never had to, like, you know, or any more debt. In fact, we'll, I, we should be out of debt in, like, a couple years, God willing, God willing. But it's crazy because we didn't have anything God always provided for us. Like, we would always pray, like, God, please, you know, like, help this to work out. You know, we never stopped giving ever, you know, to church, to God. And he has always, always, always provided for us. In fact, he's provided for us way more than we ever thought we would have. Like, even the place where we live now, you know, I don't want to get all into it, but Bully prayed, like, these really specific prayers. She's like, let there be a connected garage. <laughs> like, let there be in-unit laundry, because she was sick of, like, you know, doing at the apartment complex. Like, and I'm like, dude, why are you even praying for that? So, like, I literally was like, why are you praying for that? Like, who cares, right? Like, 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 that doesn't matter. And you know what? Like, in the grand scheme of things, does it matter? No, right? But is God generous? Yeah. God's generous. God's generous to his people. And you know what? Like, the, the greater thing is that God offers us so much more than money. Right? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, when I say, let the generosity of Christ lead you to generosity, the health wealth gospel sells Jesus so short. 
right? That's, that's the greatest tragedy of it. It's not that people are being deceived out of their money. It's that people are being deceived out of the true riches of knowing Jesus because they think money's better than Jesus, which is that version of Jesus is pathetic. That's a pathetic Jesus. The real Jesus is so much better than money. He provides us life, but not only that, he provides us in, in Corinthians 8, when, when Paul writes this, you know, you know that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that we, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The, the, the reason he's saying that is because earlier in, in that chapter, he's talking about the brothers at Macedonia who gave out of a severe test of affliction. They were so persecuted, and in their persecution... In their, in their hardship, they gave generously. And that's the idea that he offers us such a spiritual blessing that we are compelled to be generous even in financial poverty because he is so much better, so much greater than anything we could find in this world. That is the amazing generosity of Jesus that we have access to today that we learn and that we grow in as we give to him and look i'm like i'm i'm honestly i'm like very blessed by our church because people give very generously we do beat like you know i don't want brag but you know we we do beat like you know when i bring up a lot of these like national statistics like our giving is a lot higher than that but i would just encourage you to continue you know to do that and to learn and to grow in that generosity of Christ. Um, Let's pray together. I actually just want to offer you a little bit of time um, to just pray on your own. And... um, I just want to offer you some time to kind of pray through how you feel about money, right? Because I know it's a big struggle and temptation for many of us. You know, it is a cause of anxiety for many people and many families. And, you know, maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're worried. Maybe you're stressed. You know, maybe you don't feel secure. Um And I would just encourage you, be honest, you know, offer that up to God and just say, God, this is where I'm at. You know, this is how I feel. Could you just remind me, God, of how much you love me and how generous you are and how much you care for me and how much you always have cared for me? You know, maybe you're in a place where you feel good financially and you're looking for some direction like, hey, Holy Spirit, lead me. You know, where is their need? Where can I help? How can I do that? Maybe you need wisdom. And just ask God. And I know that he, he'll hear that. He'll answer you. And so let's spend some time just kind of praying for that.